Welcome to Zero Knowledge. I'm your host, Anna Rose. In this podcast, we will be exploring the latest in zero knowledge research and the decentralized web, as well as new paradigms that promise to change the way we interact and transact online. This week, Nico and I chat with Or Satat and revisit the topic of pre-quantum, post-quantum, and quantum cryptography. This is the second episode I've done with Or, and I will be adding the link to the previous episode in the show notes if you want to check that out before listening to this one. In this conversation, we cover how we can transition from a pre-quantum environment to a post-quantum environment, looking at existing systems like Bitcoin and Ethereum. We also talk about the challenges in these designs and the complications that can arise when moving between these two states. We then discuss the history of quantum money and the more recent work on this topic. Before we kick off, I want to let you know a little bit about ZK Hack Istanbul, our IRL hackathon happening November 10th through 12th. Just want to remind you that if you haven't already, be sure to get your application in. And if you have been accepted, be sure to RSVP. Only those that RSVP will be admitted. We've added the link in the show notes and we hope to see you there. Now, Tanya will share a little bit about this week's sponsor. Alio is a new layer one blockchain that achieves the programmability of Ethereum, the privacy of Zcash and the scalability of a rollup. Driven by a mission of a truly secure internet, Alio has interwoven ZK proofs into every facet of their stack, resulting in a vertically integrated layer one blockchain that's unparalleled in its approach. Alio is ZK by design. Dive into their programming language, Leo, and see what permissionless development looks like, offering boundless opportunities for developers and innovators to build ZK apps. As Alio is gearing up for their mainnet launch in Q4, this is an invitation to be part of a transformational ZK journey. Dive deeper and discover more about Alio at alio.org. So thanks again, Alio. And now here's our episode. So today we're here with Or Satath, assistant professor at the Ben-Gurion University in the Computer Science Department. His research is focused on quantum cryptography. Welcome back to the show, Or. Thank you for having me. So this is our second time doing an episode on quantum cryptography with you. Nico is joining this one as the co-host. Hey, Nico. Hello, hello. Super happy to be here. Yeah. So in our last episode, we did get a chance to cover quite a lot of ground. We explored the concept of quantum cryptography, that is cryptography built for a quantum computer environment. We also looked at some of the breakthroughs in the space, the Grover's algorithm, Shor's algorithm, and the difficulties of Bitcoin mining in the presence of multiple quantum adversaries. But at the end of the episode, we sort of went through all these other topics that we could have covered. And this is what we're going to get a chance to dive into today. And I will add the link to that in the show notes for anyone who hasn't heard that episode. I definitely recommend listening to that one first because I think it lays quite a lot of foundation for this one. I wanted to pick up from where we actually ended the last episode. One of the topics that we didn't get a chance to really cover was this idea of the migration from a pre-quantum to a post-quantum environment. You mentioned it like in two sentences, but yeah, can we talk a little bit about what that entails? What would it even mean to make that migration? Sure. So just to give the... um terms involved. So we talked about quantum cryptography, which is the field of protecting against adversaries using quantum computing, meaning you need a quantum computer and maybe a quantum network to use these uh, tools. Post-quantum cryptography, on the other hand, is classical cryptography, which is secure against quantum adversaries. And pre-quantum cryptography usually means cryptography, which is secures against classical adversaries, but not against quantum adversaries. So maybe I should reword even that question. So it's not really pre-quantum to post-quantum. That would just be the same type of cryptography, potentially. It's pre-quantum to quantum cryptography. So I guess we'll talk about both of these options okay. during this episode today. I hope we'll get to the second one, <laughs> like purely quantum cryptography, but this would be in the second part, if we'll get there. Okay, got it. As we mentioned in the previous episode, cryptography is based on the idea of turning a lemon into a lemonade. In what sense? We have a hard 
computational problem, which sounds like a lemon, right? You can't factor numbers efficiently. You can't find the discrete log, right? Efficiently, which sounds like a lemon and you turn it into a lemonade. Why is that important in cryptography? Because you want to find something that the adversary cannot do. So here is the thing that the adversary cannot do, right? Mm. The adversary cannot factorize mm. integers, etc., uh, etc. Et now, what's the problem? As was mentioned in the previous episode, some of the problems which are hard for classical computers, such as factoring and discrete log, are in fact easy for quantum computing mm. because of Shor's algorithm and some of its variants. So what does that mean? It means that some of our protocols, at least, are not quantum secure, right? If you have a quantum adversary, he could break your scheme. And in particular, almost all of the asymmetric cryptography, which is used in practice, is pre-quantum, meaning a quantum computer could break it. Mm. And specifically, the digital signatures used in most cryptocurrencies. So... What that means is once quantum adversary or a quantum computer is built, our system is not secure anymore. And although this is relevant for almost all modern systems that use cryptography, which is basically everything used in practice, mm -hmm. uh, I won't touch upon all the various aspects and try to concentrate this uh, meeting discussing only the context of cryptocurrencies. Mm -hmm. So... How do we deal with this uh, challenge? So one approach or the main approach is to switch to a different hardness assumption. And there are quite a few such assumptions. And indeed, there is an ongoing standardization process for post-quantum agreement and digital signatures done by the NIST, National Institute of Standards. And we are already have uh, several candidates for uh, both of these primitives. But unfortunately, these candidates are not as well-rounded as the classical counterparts. So one of the top candidates, which is most suitable for cryptocurrencies, is called Falcon. And the parameters which are relevant for cryptocurrencies are quite uh, interesting, right? What are you interested in terms of the performance of digital signatures in the area of cryptocurrencies, right? So there are actually several things you could look at. You could look at the public key size, you could look at the signature size, and you could look at this uh, CPU time for signing and verification and maybe also on memory constraints, right? Mm -hmm. And for example, if you look at the public key size and signature size together, in Falcon, it's roughly one and a half kilobyte if you look only at that size, compared to roughly 100 bytes in most cryptocurrencies such as Bitcoin and Ethereum, right? So you're already an order of magnitude above. Mm. Why that important? Even if we only look at the signature size. So imagine a system such as Bitcoin, whereas the block size is kept fixed, right? If the signature size goes 10 times uh, bigger, it means that your throughput goes down by a factor of 10, right? So it's not only of the computational resources by the user that we, we are concerned by the system as a whole. And uh, unfortunately, the, the throughput in a cryptocurrency drops by a factor of 10. That's a big deal, I would say. Mm -hmm. Another secondary interesting aspect is kind of more in the periphery of these questions. Uh, for example, these days we have uh, hardware wallets, right? These hardware wallets use really tiny CPUs and maybe they won't be able to use some of these candidates. I don't think anyone even, even tried to do that mm. as far as I know, right? Because they are much heavier to use. Maybe they need lots of memory, etc. So that's another kind of uh, interesting aspect. I almost want to take a quick break there and sort of ask you about these new signature schemes and all these new standards. So as you said, like, we start from lemons and we want to make lemonade. What kind of lemons are we using here? And are all the candidates using the same lemons? Oh, that's a good question. So first of all, I would say that I'm not an expert in that area. There are 
several lemmas. One of them is the learning with errors problem, which is tightly related to uh, questions related to lattices, such as the shortest ah. vector problem, etc. Th- there are others as well. But unfortunately, all the candidates for signatures that were kept as the finalists use the same family. Um, and that's why they made another attempt to look for more candidates, because that's a kind of a bummer, right? We want to have a some several, diversity there. Yeah, diversity so that if something breaks, etc. Yeah. That's the main point. Another important, relevant uh, approach is called hybrid cryptography, which we'll uh, hopefully get to in the rest of the episode. Sounds good. So in most cryptocurrencies... There is already a risk in some sense, right? There is something which we call unsafe coins. What are unsafe coins? Uh, These are Bitcoins, ETH, whatever, that once that there is a quantum computer, they are at risk. The adversary could loot those coins. Mm -hmm. Specifically in Bitcoin, roughly one third of the Bitcoins are unsafe. I'll share the link for the paper that studied that question. And there are two main reasons for that. And I guess we even need to understand how most cryptocurrencies used and why aren't all of them yeah. unsafe. <laughs> when you say one third, that sounds so counterintuitive. Yeah. So interestingly, if you get ECDSA public key, you could get the secret key using a quantum computer. Right. So at this point, the adversary could forge messages on your behalf. So that sounds really bad. Mm. Interestingly, in Bitcoin, the standard approach to use an address is actually not to post your public key. Instead, you post something like the hash of your public key. And as you may remember, for that, quantum computers are not so good. For these types of questions, you need to use Grover's algorithm, which was discussed uh, previously, and that only gives you a quadratic advantage. That's not such a big deal. So addresses in which the public key is hashed, Mm. these are safe. Now, when do you reveal the public key? When you spend it, right? When you spend it, instead of saying just, okay, this is my signature, you basically say, okay, this was my public key, You could check it by hashing it and see that they agree. And then you attach the signature. And if you haven't ever signed a message using your signing key, your Bitcoins are safe. Does this then mean that like two thirds of Bitcoin addresses have never signed? Exactly. Really? Oh, I didn't know that. Uh, 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 Sorry, let me be more precise. It's not two thirds of the addresses. It's two thirds of the coins. Okay. Right? These are not exactly the same things. Okay. If you want to know the number of transactions, this is like 70 million, roughly, that are are unsafe. I see. This is the number. Interestingly, the ones which are unsafe usually, or at least the the biggest ones in terms of volume in, in some sense, are the ones by Satoshi. So there are very few, but they are, you know, worth lots and lots of Bitcoins. So, oh. so the, the mismatch here is quite large. So as long as you use something which is called P2PKH, pay to public key hash, as long as you haven't reused an address, which is the best practice, your Bitcoins are safe. Mm. Interestingly, this is not the best practice in Ethereum. Mm-hmm. Right. So different cryptocurrencies have different approaches to these questions and, and therefore Ethereum is more prone to these attacks. Uh, but, but under that assumption, your coins are safe. Interestingly, as I mentioned, Satoshi used a different standard in the very early stages, which is called P2PK. And therefore, most, uh, well, we don't really know, etc., etc. but we believe that most of his coins were unsafe for this weird technical reason. Huh. Okay. Uh, so, so you might think that, okay, maybe for the safe coins, we are, we are okay because their public key has not been revealed and therefore, okay, we'll simply switch to post-quantum cryptography before the quantum adversary takes our money. Mm. So what's the problem there? Suppose now there is a quantum adversary and you have money that you want to spend. Okay. How do you switch to use the post-quantum cryptography, right? Mm -hmm. How do you prove that you're the owner? 
So as soon as I do, as I get targeted do. by the quantum adversary, right? <laughs> exactly. In order to spend that money, you need to post the transaction to the mempool, right? Thus once it's in the mempool, public key or public which address. reveals your public yeah. key. Once it's in the mempool, the adversary could break it mm. and post an alternative transaction, which steals all your money. Interestingly, this question was raised, uh, I think, in 2013 already by Vitalik Buterin. And he kind of uh, gave a first shot, I guess. That's a way to describe it, at solving this issue. So what he suggested was to use a very simple approach to get around this issue. Instead of simply posting your transaction, we'll use something which is called a commitment scheme. In a commitment scheme, you first commit to a message and then reveal it. Mm. Now, if you committed to something, there is a way to do it in a way which is secure against quantum adversaries. Basically, you hash the message. So instead of just revealing your transaction, you post commitment or the hash of that message to the blockchain. Then you wait a few confirmations so that things wouldn't be turned around against you and then reveal the transaction. So that's the approach that he kind of uh, suggested as a way to get around this problem. You see, because at the uh, second step after you reveal, in order to steal your money, the the adversary has to do this commitment a few Mm -hmm. blocks behind. So that's too late for the adversary to do that. I hope that makes sense. Mm -hmm. That does, yeah. Okay. But there's a gap here in this argument, which I don't know if he spotted already or it, it, it wasn't mentioned definitely in his proposal. It was mentioned, by the way, by others, but I think that in his blog post it wasn't mentioned. Can you think about it? It's kind of interesting. I want to give the audience as well a minute to Mm. think about it. Where's the problem here? And I already mentioned that it's related to the commitment. Just to go over it again, though. So do you put forward your key towards the commitment scheme or do you create a commitment scheme that includes? So basically, you just think about it as you, instead of posting the transaction itself, at the first stage, you only post the hash of the transaction Mm -hmm. and wait, say, 10 blocks and then reveal the transaction itself. And everyone agrees that in order for a transaction to be valid, it first has to be committed to and then revealed 10 blocks or more after. As long as there is no commitment, it's invalid, you know. After the reveal phase, the adversary could break it, right? It could reveal your secret key. But mm-hmm. he's, he has lost the race because it's too late, right? It's already published on the blockchain now. And there's no way for him to post a competing transaction. Okay, but you're looking for the hole in this. Is it yeah. that just by posting the commitment scheme or the hash, you're already revealing? No, because it's quantum okay. computers okay. cannot like uh, undo the hash. Mm-hmm. They cannot break the, the properties of a hash function. Okay efficiently is it a case that we need very strong censorship resistance because at the point Mm. where i'm going to reveal the stuff i committed to if you censor me uh then suppose you know yeah yeah that's actually not so much the issue (laughs) interesting Interesting, right yeah how do you post the commitment who pays for the commitment the gas the gas that's the the gas the gas how there's Uh, no way for you to prove that you're the owner And therefore, you have no way of paying gas. Yeah. So the fee turns out to be a really important loophole in this argument. You see? This is why the proposal he made wouldn't satisfy this problem. It's not fully... Yeah, it doesn't solve this this issue of gas. Would by having gas, like you create the hash, would it cause the reveal or it just... You couldn't do it? If I'm allowed to simply post hashes on the blockchain, that would be a nightmare. And at that point, when I'm posing them, maybe I'm not the owner. There's no way for me, there's no way for anyone to be sure that I'm really the owner, right? Yeah. So that's the gap that we kind of uh, need to solve. Do we need a separate quantum secure chain or post-quantum secure chain, I guess, to be precise, Um, to which we can post commitments with its own fee and then go back to that? mm. So let me take it in two steps. Mm -hmm. So first of all, this idea of using a commit and reveal scheme was also presented in a paper by uh, Miller and uh, Bonneux 
called Foxcoin, mm. which had also interesting other ideas, but they kind of addressed this question directly about the fees and they were suggesting, okay, either we have a direct side payment between the user and the miner, for example, you know, use PayPal to pay for the fees, or maybe if you have another post-quantum address, you could use that, right? If you already have a few Bitcoins, which are quantum secure to pay for the fees, then you could use that address. Right? So mm. these are the two kind of, uh, okay. but what do we do with users who didn't, uh, uh, this on-ramping, right? They need to get their first post-quantum coins. How do they do that? So in a joint work with my student, Shai Viborski, we showed a different mechanism to resolve the issue of fees. And this approach is based on a general technique, which we call the signature lifting. And the idea there is the following. Suppose you have an existing quantum unsafe signature scheme or a pre-quantum signature scheme with a signing key SK and a public key PK. A signature lifting scheme is a post-quantum signature scheme, which uses the old keys, okay? So you use the same keys, but with a different signing and verification algorithm. Okay. Kind of weird. Huh. It sounds very... So where my intuition is now failing is with discrete log-based schemes, the problem was as soon as I see the public key, I can find the private key. How do we get around that? Great. Great. Okay. So the important ingredient which we need is that there is uh, something which we call a post-quantum step. That there's something post-quantum taking you from the secret key to the public key. Uh -huh. So if you simply use ECDSA, there is no such post-quantum step. So as you mentioned, Nico, indeed, the ECDSA scheme, which is used in Bitcoin and Ethereum, if the public key is not hashed, then there is no such post-quantum step because you could simply recover the secret key from the public key. Okay, so you need something else. So our approach before getting into the details, is based on one of the post-quantum signature schemes that was submitted to NIST called Picnic. And this uh, scheme has an interesting idea. It's based on any post-quantum one-way function. So let me remind you, a one-way function is a function which you could evaluate given x, you could evaluate f of x efficiently, but given y, which is f of x, you can't find any pre-image mm -hmm. of y such as x or anything else that evaluates to f of x. Hash functions are a good example. Such as hash functions or something more concrete. Mm. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So definitely hash functions are such one-way function. They have even more properties. So in Picnic, the signing key is simply a random x and the public key is simply f of x. Mm -hmm. That's it. Mm. Uh, so it's, it's a, if you want, you could think about it as a transformation. It takes a one-way function and gives you a signature scheme. So the transformation needs to be post-quantum, right? Mm -hmm. But as I mentioned again, and Nico kind of is already troubled, right? The transformation that we are discussing is not post-quantum. So what on earth am I talking about? Mm -hmm. So the point is that, for example, if it's not that the public key here is simply the ECDSA public key, but the hash of it. Then we're golden, right? Mm. So that solved the first issue. This deals with then that gas issue? Like the gas issue is taken care exactly. of. How is it taken care of? Though? Exactly. I don't really get it. Because you could already <laughs> sign messages using your old keys. Oh, uh, yeah. Okay. Everyone knows the hash of your public key. The only one knowing that knows the secret key is you. And now mm -hmm. you have a signature scheme, which is post-quantum secure. Okay. To even make that change, though, like, where's the change happening? Is this happening, like, on the client software side? Like, I don't... Definitely. Kinda, definitely. Yeah, you like need to upgrade all... Like, okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. You need to switch to some kind of a fork, probably a uh, soft fork or hard fork. It kind of needs to be determined. I, 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 we didn't get into the, those questions. Uh, at least if you do it naively, definitely a hard fork. Mm -hmm. And everyone agrees that the old schemes are gone and then you use the picnic scheme with that specific uh, one-way function as your uh, new verification and signing algorithms right so everything needs to be changed yeah definitely it's not uh it's not a minor thing 
this is a practical point, but I just, given the rate of change in the Bitcoin example, like I can imagine it being very difficult to get that change through, Sure, right? Like there's a lot of resistance to this. Sure. Sure. So in the previous episode, we discussed the timelines that people are considering as realistic. So we definitely have some time, at least a few years, but it isn't clear how long do we really have. Do we have 10 years, uh, five years, 15 years? That's uh, mm -hmm. clearly the, 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 you know, fastest we do it is the better, right? And it will, will require quite uh, a drastic change. Okay, so, so again, the idea would be that you could use your old keys and sign your messages instead of using ECDSA, you'd use this picnic scheme. Okay, so now there, there are kind of uh, various questions. One is, okay, this is a theoretical construction. How good is it? Okay, and this is the bad news. The numbers are terrible. Okay, the... Like the speed? Or the like size the, of the signatures okay. is roughly, for SHA-256, it's 600 kilobytes. You yeah. remember that in, in the Bitcoin, it was something like 100 bytes? Mm -hmm. It's three orders of, more than three orders of magnitude yeah. longer signatures. Oh. So that's terrible, okay? And it's not even precisely what we need. That's for SHA-256. Here we need to use a slightly different one-way function. So I guess the bottom line is, that's pretty bad. Mm -hmm. So we'll discuss how to kind of uh, optimize uh, it or optimize it in some sense and, and maybe pay with in other terms, but, but at least we don't need to kind of use a half a megabyte per signature. So that's the first thing. The second thing is, well, what do we do with the others? Coins, right? Coins which are not quantum safe. Uh, this is because we're still talking about the two thirds of the Bitcoin Yes. Network mm -hmm. or number of coins that have not been made where yes. their public keys are still. Yes. Not and in used. Ethereum, I don't even have the numbers, but probably, you know, the, the, the vast majority is unsafe. Okay. So you can't even use that. Wow. So now we're trying to tackle that one third that has used their public key. Exactly. And the Ethereum addresses, which was used for, you know, you, you spent part of your ETH on and bought some ice cream. I don't know. What do we do with that? Mm -hmm. I want to give the audience a second to think about it. The challenge here is that the public key is already revealed, yeah. which means you already know the secret key. Is there something still that the adversary does not know? Notice that at this point, if you have a quantum adversary, he knows your secret key. Hmm. It sounds like game over, but I'm arguing this is not the case. Hmm. That there is a way to fix that. And you still have an advantage over the adversary. And I'll give you a hint. What you should think about is how do you start using Bitcoin, Ethereum, whatever. What's the first thing that you do and how does that process begins? The wallet? The seed phrase. No? Yes. Seed phrase. Okay. Yes. Okay. You have the seed. How is the secret oh. key generated from that seed? Yeah, it uses a hash function. Yeah. And again... You have the seed. There's a, there's a post-quantum step here which you could use. And again, the same idea holds. Now it's way more complicated. Whoever's interested can read the paper. Unfortunately, <laughs> it's really tedious. Oh. Uh, if you want, I can try to explain why it's not so trivial. So wait, your ECDSA private key now becomes your public key? And the seed becomes your private key? Exactly. Wow. Oh. Kind of weird. But yeah. like, would it not make sense then to do that just for the entire network? Like, why do the two different techniques uh, for the safe and unsafe? That's a great question. Um, honestly, we don't know the numbers. I suspect that the one based on the seed is way more complicated because to the very oh. least, the proofs are way nastier. Okay. Way, way, way nastier. But I'm not sure how the, the numbers will turn out. Mm. Yeah, um, it's called the derivation path, right? How do you derive your secret key from your seed? Yeah. Right? It's kind of complicated and it's not formally, it's not simply a one-way function. There are several technical things that need to be addressed. I'm not sure how they'll turn out, but this is definitely an option. I mean, mm. um, for most people. I'll give you one example where it's not. Suppose you created a 
P2PKH, right? Uh, pay to public key hash address. In 2011, there were no HD wallets at the time, right? So you can't use the other approach because the, the user doesn't have the seed, mm. right? So for those users, you definitely need to have these, uh, the first approach that we discussed. Mm-hmm. And probably it would be more efficient. So, so probably that's uh, another uh, advantage. I want to just do one clarification. This is just making me realize something that I hadn't really thought of. But like, there is no way to, from the secret key, derive the seed, I guess. Like, nope. that's one way always. Okay. Because that's the post-quantum step. There is a hash function there. I see. The adversary the, okay. cannot break that hash. Okay. So that's, again, that's Grover's algorithm. Only a quadratic speedup for things involved in that post-quantum step. Okay. And that's kind of a miracle, right? There was no mm-hmm. real mm-hmm. reason that the derivation should have been post-quantum. Mm. But people chose a post-quantum, um, you know, Technique. procedure yeah. for, for, you know, really orthogonal reasons, which has nothing to do with... Uh, they mm-hmm. definitely didn't think about a picnic when they derived because the picnic was invented later, right? So no one w- could have uh, guessed that this is going to be... turned. Th- this is going to turn out so useful. Uh, but yeah, we, we can definitely take advantage of it. Another quick question about this um, quadratic speedup. Does this actually mean like having the number of bits of security? Yes. And is that not still quite significant? Sure, uh, but uh, still, you know, for hash, uh, reducing the number of uh, security bits by a half is okay. You know, you cannot parallelize it. Mm -hmm. So that's another kind of big advantage that that cannot be, you know. So the last issue that we need to address is related to the signature sizes, right? We remember these are turned out to be one and a half megabytes, at least instead of uh, 100 bytes. So actually, what do we do is kind of, construct a way to do to enjoy both worlds the user sends a commitment but also the post quantum signature using this uh, signature lifting technique which we discussed the miner posts this commitment and keeps the signature just in case the user tries to cheat okay and only if the f- user fails to reveal the miner posts it on the blockchain. And there are many, many kind of things that you need to consider. And I won't do it here. If you want, go ahead and read the paper. And we try to deal with all the questions that arise because of these things like uh, denial of service attacks and many other questions. Uh, but I think we, we don't need to get into that in this uh, discussion. Okay, so this sort of fixes our problem. I guess the next question is, how do we know if computers are around? I think you mentioned canneries last time. What do those look like? Sure. So one of the challenges is when do we make these adjustments, right? When do Mm. we switch to this post-quantum signature schemes? You don't want to do it too early because from that point onwards, some money will get lost for reasons which I won't get into. Some money will get burned. Mm. So you don't definitely don't want to do it too early and we lose efficiency and we lose lots of things. So you don't want to do it too early. And on the other hand, you don't want to do it too late. So what are the ways to get around this issue? What we propose is to use an idea, which was first proposed by uh, Justin Drake called uh, cryptographic canneries. These are challenges that are put on the blockchain with a bounty, right? So imagine you could put a bounty for breaking ECDSA, or SHA-256, or whatever, and maybe even with uh, easier hardness, right? And for example, for Mm. our purposes, we want to have something which is, you know, say, you could break it with a quantum computer, say, six months before the one which could break the Mm -hmm. full-blown scheme. Ah, it's like a slightly easier... Exactly. Okay. So you want to publish this uh, challenges on the blockchain, which are slightly easier, and change the policy according to that. For example, after this quantum cannery dies, say three months later, everyone has to switch to use Mm. post-quantum cryptography, right? And you cannot use the old one because the adversary could use that, right? So that's where the quantum canneries are used. Is there an incentive issue here? Because say I'm trying to build a quantum computer, I realize that I beat the cannery. I don't tell anyone and I know like, okay, I'm about like six (laughs) months away from doing something big here. 
Yeah. So actually, we have a game theoretic analysis. Okay. As long as there is a competition, mm. and you're afraid that maybe ah, in you know, and I'm six months ahead, but you know, if someone comes in 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 one month and take the bounty before me, then I'm screwed, right? Mm. So now there's a game theoretic question, and and you kind of need to analyze it, and of course. I'm not so sure how good this is, right? It right. might be a good idea if there's a single entity, not so good. Yeah. So it really builds on the competition between different quantum computing manufacturers. Huh. It's a little bit like it's good that it's there, but it's somewhat optimistic, right? Like it's sort of assuming that there will be like a fair balanced competition mm -hmm. that they kind of know about each other. And if people will be willing to agree that to switch to that way before or find another way to kind of figure yeah. out when this happens, I'll be perfectly happy. So far, we've been talking mostly about like using existing cryptography in a post quantum computer world. And like all these techniques are just to add something post quantum that we already know will work. But are you ever looking at actually making adjustments or these sort of like conversions to quantum cryptography? So this is kind of very interesting because you, it takes a even historic perspective. So, so historically, there were two main routes to construct money, right? Mostly old money used physical objects that are hard to copy, such as mm. commodity money, cash, etc. Modern money or the other approach uses some kind of a ledger that records all the transactions, such as bank accounts, credit cards, cryptocurrencies, etc. All of them use this second approach. Now, interestingly, one of the peculiarities of quantum mechanics is uh, something called the no-cloning theorem. Oh, yeah. It, it says that if, you if I give you a quantum state and you don't know what that state is or how I prepared it, there is no way for you to create another copy of it. I think in the last episode, you started with that example of this, um, yeah. yeah, that you could use it for like running a program that one could share yes. if there's a connection between those two entities, yes. but someone outside of it would not be able to actually access this program. Yes, yes, cool. yes. And why is it relevant for us? Again, more broadly, cryptographers are interested in things which are impossible or hard, right? Why? Because, well, that gives you a handle on something that the adversary cannot do. So this is just another example of that instantiation, right? No cloning. There's a no in it. Mm -hmm. Good for cryptographers, right? Yeah. So quantum money was first invented by Stephen Wiesner in 1969. Ooh. Uh, it, wow. you, you have to understand this is before classical modern cryptography, right? Yeah. So this goes way back. And he proposed to use this idea of the no-cloning theorem. And this was actually the first paper that thought about quantum mechanics in the context of quantum information. So in some sense, you could make the argument that he's the, the father of quantum information in a broader sense, right? That uses qubits to do computation or manipulate information in arbitrary ways. And he invented the first quantum money scheme, which is somewhat similar to credit card. In what sense? Hmm. Unlike the cash we use today, in Wisner's money, you needed to go to the bank to verify your money. So you have to communicate with the bank in order to spend it. But uh. unlike a credit card, the money itself is not associated with any particular entity. Okay. okay? Who's the third party in that, though? What's the third party like? Who's the bank, kind of? I know the central bank, the uh, private bank. Oh, it would actually be an entity an still. Yeah. Like it you'd be, be in, it's interactive in a way. Think then. of it okay. as like most of the money that people use today, that there is a trusted third party. Yeah, okay. Just like that. It was 1969. Yeah, yeah, I they mean, didn't have so. any other ideas. Okay, <laughs> exactly, <it>. exactly. <laughs> okay, what are the advantages of uh, Wiesner's money? The two most important advantages over cash is the fact that you could digitally move it from, you know, one place on Earth to the other, if you have a quantum communication channel, unlike cash we use today. And the second one is about the security guarantees. You know, what stops you from forging the money that we have in our pockets? Right? There's no really 
formal guarantees about it. If you mm. have a good enough machine and mm -hmm. people to, that are willing to take the risk, uh, the, the, most likely they'll be able to do it, right? It's security mm -hmm. by obscurity. Uh, there are no formal guarantees about it. Whereas in his quantum money scheme, he had a security proof or maybe, okay, actually, uh, let me be more precise. In 2009, there was a, a period, the first, I would say, full security proof of Wiesner's scheme. Uh, so even though he didn't have the terminology and even the language, right? Because look, it was 1969. The notion of a qubit was not invented. Mm. The notion of the no cloning theorem was not invented. He, he wow. was essentially walking on air. His arguments were uh, really shaky. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's kind of interesting example because it took 15 years for the paper to get published. And it was wow. circulated between some of the more eccentric people mm -hmm. or wow. computer scientists around. It was barely known by the wider community, mm -hmm. but still he managed to um, talk with others about it, such as Charlie Bennett and uh, Brassard and, and other that are kind of invented many important cryptographic primitives based on his ideas and are actually now way more important in some sense because these were practical inventions, mm -hmm. unlike his. Uh, I guess one more point about quantum money is that this is almost science fiction. Okay. Mm -hmm. As I mentioned, we don't have quantum computers. And in order to have like a functioning money system, not only you need to have a good quantum computer, you need to keep it right for a long period of time. So current quantum computers run for something between a microsecond and a millisecond. Okay, this is the time in which the qubits wouldn't be destroyed in some sense by noise. Mm. Now, if I told you that, uh, here, take your money for the next millisecond, you would be kind of frustrated, right? Uh, one of the functions of money is store of value, right? Yeah. Which means you yeah. want to store it for, you know, the next year or your children, right? So for that purpose, it's horrible yeah. and it's unclear when this will take place. Mm. I didn't actually realize this, that you just said that the quantum computer, the issue is it's just totally unstable, it sounds like. Yes. Like it won't last long. And when yes. you say last long, like you're saying you need the computer to last like a couple months or a year or something, right? Like so yep. that it could actually yep. do something more than the millisecond worth of computation exactly. or whatever it's doing. Exactly. Okay. We, we expect Shor's algorithm to take something like a second or, or a few seconds so for that, you need the noise level to be reduced, but okay, only by a few orders of magnitude and use some fancy error correcting codes, etc. Mm. For something like quantum money, you need a completely different approach. I guess the upside is that you don't need all the fancy computation involved. So I'm not sure when exactly mm. it's going to happen, but I don't expect that to take, you know, a few years. Another aspect is that unlike the risks that we talked about, now, for the, these risks, you need a single quantum computer. To have a useful quantum money uh, system, you need that to be, you know, uh, cheap and, and, you know... Ideally decentralized? Maybe that's even too crazy to wish for. You want users to have that, right? Yeah. You want the, the user's cell phone to have quantum capabilities. This is decades away. That would yeah. be my guess. I, of course, I'm not a physicist. This is outside my area of expertise. But I suspect this will take time. That's my personal guess. Another practical question. You mentioned um, quantum communication channels. Sure. Because I'm guessing we have to exchange qubits. How does that happen? What does that look like? Can we do that? What kind of wires do we use, right? So they basically look like the channels we use today. They use fiber optics, but they're way noisier, right? You need you need completely different approach to handle noise. Unlike the fiber optics we use today where the, the signal is repeated many times, here a single photon encodes a qubit. Well, right, mm -hmm. so things need to be done quite differently, and the rates are lower, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And especially dealing with hops, you know, between different uh, nodes in the network, that's a really big challenge. But we definitely know how to do that for for short ranges, like a few kilometers, etc. There is already, you know, can we reuse the existing fiber optics infrastructure? 
I don't know okay. uh, enough to tell you. I think that the answer is yes, but I'm, I'm not 100% sure. Well, and definitely, again, there's a huge loss in efficiency. So uh, mm. that has to be taken into account. I want to keep going on the quantum money topic. Mm. So I feel like you've given a really good history of it and that this sure. idea was brought up. But like that is still like very much the central model. And it was based on, like you said, walking on air, like it was sort of sure. making assumptions that I guess turned out to be true. Yep. But has there been any other work on that? Has sure. there been progress on quantum money? Definitely, definitely. Okay. So I guess from around 2010, there were huge developments. The main one was the idea of public quantum money. So public quantum money is we still have central bank, but the bank publishes the bank's public key. And there's an algorithm that uses the bank's public key to verify money, okay? So this is now way more similar to the cash we use today, where, you know, when Nico and I make a transaction, it's actually between Nico and I. The bank is not involved at all, mm. okay? Um, so that was the idea that, that came up in 2010, roughly. The constructions unfortunately, to this day, are, I would say, not based on standard assumptions. We still don't have provably secure quantum money scheme, which is public under standard assumptions. Mm. I can get into the details of what's the state of the art, but I would say that there's still lots to hope for. Is there any sort of decentralized model even being proposed, or is it so yeah. far off and too no. complicated? No, no, it's no. Okay. not. Uh, actually, it has been proposed. There are several variants. Uh, one of them is called quantum lightning, and the other is called one-shot signatures. I think it's easier to explain the second one, even though it's even fancier. Mm -hmm. uh, in one-shot signatures, we use something which is called a common reference string or a common random string, which is mm -hmm. often used in uh, cryptography. Say in the common random string, we need to have a string that was generated in a way which was honest, right? And no one kept any secrets. And once we have this random string, everyone agrees that this is the random string to be used. And then we have an algorithm that people could use to generate a one-shot signature state, hmm. okay? The bad news about one-shot signatures is that we don't really have a candidate construction. I mentioned the common reference string, but another assumption that we need is that this is only true relative to an oracle. Now, I don't want to get into what exactly does that mean, but we need to assume that there is a functionality that everyone has access to. It's tailored made for that purpose. It's not like the random oracle model for those that know what that is. And the scheme is secure only relative to that oracle. And we don't know how to construct it from any assumptions in the standard model, right? Even standard assumptions are non-standard. There aren't even candidates for that. Mm -hmm. So I guess I want to emphasize that this is uh, science fiction now, not only in terms mm. of experimental setup, but also from a theoretical setup. We don't know how to instantiate it. How does this oracle differ from a trusted third party? Uh, one way to think about it is a trusted third party. Okay. But we prefer not to think about it that way because, for example, if you could obfuscate it, maybe you could give it to everyone, right? So the fact that there is a, something that is only a functionality Right? It doesn't mm, need to, mm -hmm. to keep a state or anything like that. That's a nice advantage because maybe, for example, indistinguishability obfuscation uh, could allow you to turn it into something more practical. Mm. But that's kind of more for the experts, etc. I guess that the, the, for the layman, it basically means that there are definitely bad news in terms of practicality of that scheme. Is this kind of like the ZKP in the trusted setup? Uh, yeah. Similarly, yeah, <laughs> okay. very, sim very similar to that. But but again, the goal is very, very different from that, okay. right? Even though the setup is the same. Once we have that uh, random string, we can use it to issue one-shot signature states or one-shot tokens, if you wish. What do they provide? Given that state, you could sign any message you want. So you generated the state. The state has a public key. And you could use the state that you have along with this public key and generate a signature. An adversary cannot generate two signatures that are verified with the same public key. Mm. Kind of weird. So again, I could take that 
take the, the random string, generate the quantum state and the public key. Use the quantum state to sign any message I want. That's the thing that I can do. What's the thing that I cannot do or any efficient adversary cannot do? The adversary cannot prepare a public key and two signatures that fast verification. Why is that? The signing algorithm destroys the state. So you have one shot to create your signature, right? Okay, that sounds kind of weird. How is that all related to uh, the question that you ask, right, Anna? Mm -hmm. Yeah, going back to this, like, sort of makes like the pre-quantum to quantum, right? Yeah. Or no? Uh, I would say, look, look let, let me even propose a more, uh, okay. I think, interesting idea as a okay. way to transform a system such as Bitcoin to use quantum money. So the first thing we need is a random string. What random string will we use? Something from the, you know, first Bitcoin headers, right? Mm -hmm. There's lots of randomness in there. Use randomness extractors. That's, uh, that, that question was studied. We have good ways to generate random strings from that. Mm -hmm. Now, suppose we want to switch to quantum money. A user will attach a message to the blockchain. The blockchain, it will have something along the, the, the next format, right? I or who, who has the secret key associated with my Bitcoins want to transform my Bitcoin to quantum money. And here is my public key. Here is the one-shot signature public key, right? The first thing I do is I'll create the one-shot signature state and the public key and post a message saying, look, the money isn't associated with my Bitcoin secret key. Instead, it's associated with my one-shot signatures public key, right? Now, when I want to send it to Nico, I'll simply hand over the quantum state to mm -hmm. Nico. Nico could use the verification algorithm, and he knows that it's valid. That's one way. Another is even more interesting. Instead, Nico will generate another state, right? And now, when I want to spend it, I'll sign Nico's public key, mm. right? And now we have, it's interesting, right? We have a chain, chain yeah. right? That goes from my public key to Nico's public key. Hmm. And Nico could go send his money to Anna, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And since we have this chain and we know that there was no split, there were no double spends simply because you could not use your one-shot signature state to sign two messages. Oh, wow. So it really looks like hmm. a chain. And uh, that's uh, something we proposed with in work with uh, Andrea Coladangelo using the quantum lightning. And, and it can also be done with the one-shot signature state and get even more advantages, uh, mainly ones related to smart contracts. You don't necessarily have to use, I don't have to spend my coin to Nico only. I can do various other things like uh, multi-sig, etc. Just a quick question. In a way, what you've explain here of we have this chain of signature and we know that there's no fork because of the properties of this one-shot signature. Does this mean that we no longer need consensus? Exactly. Well, You no longer need consensus. Oh. Yeah, I should have uh, said that. It's yeah, just the you, properties. You could stop the blockchain, right? Imagine yeah. that huh. everyone transitions to quantum money. You don't need the blockchain anymore. Whoa. You just need to make sure that you do need to know what are the final public keys, right? Because that's the issued money. But other than that, you don't need. The downside, if you do that, is that there are certain things that cannot be done, right? There are certain things that quantum money does not allow, but things like Ethereum do, such as um, Ethereum name service, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. And we don't have an alternative for that. Is it almost like the state of the quantum money is a little bit like Bitcoin, like just the level of activity that you could do with it? Exactly. Okay. Exactly. So I definitely recommend such a transition for a system such as a Bitcoin, mm -hmm. uh, but not for a system such as Ethereum. Mm. Okay. Although there are some examples of functions, which I don't know, or I don't think possible to achieve, which are, which is done in Bitcoin. I'll just give one example, which is one out of three multisig. This is something that you cannot do in, oh, yeah. um, because the, the no cloning property doesn't hold for that in some sense. You could yeah. do two out of three, but there's no way to do one out of three. So there are some functionality that you cannot do. A another interesting example is 
timestamping. You know, Bitcoin creates a block every few minutes and you could create interesting applications based on this fact. And uh, indeed, uh, open timestamps is, is one such example, which allows you to timestamp documents uh, very easily and cheaply. And these types of things cannot be done without okay. the blockchain. What about things like like the way that Ethereum works, the fact that you can do smart contracts and stuff, everything you've described sounds like a relatively, you know, one use case type money transferring system. Sure. But yeah, has there been thinking around trying to recreate some sort of smart contract platform using quantum computing? So there have been little work on that question, yeah. and we definitely don't know the boundary. What are the things that can and cannot be done? Right? That's, I guess, the bad news. The bad news is we don't know where the boundary is. What th things require consensus? Or, on the other hand, what are the things that can be done only using unclonability properties? Mm. Okay? So I would say the following. We do have lots of examples for things that can be done based on no cloning or quantum money uh, primitives alone. This includes things like colored coins. This is, I think, the most interesting example. Yeah. Colored coins can e even be used for uh, things like um, stocks, right? You could A company could issue stocks mm. uh, using this uh, one-shot signature state. This would represent a share, mm -hmm. right? The share could be, you know, uh, traded just like cash. Mm. Yeah. And payments could be made to that stock by the company, similarly to the way it's done with uh, colored coins. Uh, there are voting rights that the, this uh, state allows you to use mm -hmm. because you can sign messages, right? So if there's a question that needs to be mm -hmm. answered, you could use your voting rights to sign the message that you prefer uh, or the vote that you prefer. And there are very various other things. Again, multi-sig with things like two out of three, there are kind of things like saving accounts, permanent addresses, there, there's a kind of a long list of things that can be done, but also a, a long list of things that cannot be done, I guess. Think about all the NFTs or other things that are done in Ethereum. Some of them cannot be uh, done. You cannot play a game on uh, such a system. Not yet. Not, uh, yeah, not yet. At least I don't think <laughs> Theoretically, you, you, not yet. <laughs> even theoretically, you wouldn't yeah. be able to do that. And I, I'll post the, I guess I, I'll send the link to the paper that uh, suggests this uh, line of uh, research. Sounds good. And we'll add that to the show notes. So since we are on ZK Podcast, I have to ask, can we do arguments of knowledge, succinct arguments of knowledge, zero knowledge arguments, where the soundness guarantees are quantum secure? Yeah. So I know very little about these questions, but as far as I understand, first of all, the picnic scheme uses this approach, this exact approach as you mentioned, right? Essentially, you use the secret key and give a zero knowledge proof of some statement, okay? Mm. So it definitely uses that approach. But unfortunately, unlike the ZK uh, proof techniques that we have today, which are really have been optimized and are quite efficient, etc., that's not the case here. And as you've seen, right, the signature sizes are, are one half megabytes. And I'm not mm -hmm. talking about aggregation mm -hmm. or any of the fancier questions that are addressed in the ZK uh, literature, right? Mm -hmm. So it's worth in every aspect you could think of in terms of uh, practicality. I should add, though, we, we do know of like plausibly post-quantum ZK schemes, like stuff that is Fry-based, I think our listeners probably have heard those words, mm. um, it relies only on hash functions and so are assumed to be post-quantum secure. Sure, but are, are they as efficient as the other uh, alternatives? They're getting there. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I don't know. If they are getting there, then maybe I'm... I'm yeah. I, I yeah. wasn't aware that they are getting there. In a show I did about FHE, we talked about lattice-based ZKPs. Would those be post-quantum? Mm -hmm. Yes, absolutely. Okay. Unless there's something, you know, you could combine it with other things and then it would not. But if that's mm. the only type of assumption, then yeah, usually you can, uh, you know, lattice-based questions such as uh, shortest vector problem or other variants are hard even for quantum computers. Yeah. Just to check, though, the type of underlying concepts that are not post-quantum secure, 
is that like pairing or elliptic curve cryptography? Is that what is not secure post-quantum? Yeah, I guess the vast majority of uh, elliptic curve cryptography is not quantum secure. The exception is uh, something called isogenies. Oh, yeah. Uh, Ooh, and but I think some... that had a problem, didn't it? It's awfully complicated. (laughs) Some of the proposals have been broken. It's kind of uh, complicated, but I I think it's still, uh, if you wish, alive. There's still hope that that it's not dead end, uh, but it's definitely extremely complicated. And Mm -hmm. I guess one of the reasons why it didn't work in the NIST uh, challenge, right? The proposal which did use that were not chosen. Some of them were broken Mm -hmm. and, and others were, you know, simply inefficient or, or not, not secure enough compared to the alternatives. One more thing. Do you know if anyone is looking at using the unclonability property for ZK and argument type stuff? Because I think the ones we did mention, the lattice-based stuff that I've seen, the hash-based stuff, doesn't bring in this new element of unclonability. Mm. So there are definitely other related questions, uh, which we kind of mentioned before, uh, which is called unclonable cryptography. And some of these primitives do use ZK proofs for their security analysis, right? I wouldn't say that it's directly related to the questions related to snarks or anything like that as as a technique. Mm -hmm. It, It constructs different things using ZK techniques. You see what I'm saying? I'm not aware of any unclonability arguments being used uh, Mm. simply for the sake of vanilla ZK proof. So another interesting crossover moment between ZK and quantum cryptography, you've mentioned the common reference string model and you've mentioned um, proofs of destruction. In ZKPs, like we have this thing of a trusted setup, like someone comes up with a seed, generates a big string, and the proofs are only secure if this person deleted the original seed. Are these proofs something we could use here? So there is something which is called um, proof of deletion and proof of destruction, which uh, appears in, in various different um, concepts in quantum cryptography. I'll give you one such example. It's called quantum encryption with certified deletion. Ooh. So what does that mean? So usually, if I give you the ciphertext and then later give you the secret key, you could decipher it and reveal the message, right? In some cases, you want to make sure that I gave you the cipher and I I want to make sure that you gave it back to me, right? Mm -hmm. Classically, there is no way to know. In the quantum setting, there is. Instead of encrypting it using a classical message, I could take my message and encrypt it using a quantum cipher. And I give you a quantum state. Then I'll ask you to give it back to me or do a test to check that you destroyed it. This is Mm. called a proof of deletion. I give you a challenge. I'll tell you, look, please measure the state in, in this and that basis. And you will tell me, ah, I did. And the outcomes were this and that. And now I know that you destroyed my message. Okay. Uh, And even if it later on, I'll give you the secret key, the original message is gone. You Mm. could not recover it even after I'll give you the secret key. And this is the type of thing that you cannot achieve uh, in the classical setting, right? If Mm. I give give you the classical cipher, there is no way for me to be sure that you have destroyed it. Another interesting use case is the GDPR, right? Mm. Where services are supposed to delete the information if the user chooses to. Sorry, but how do we know that they deleted the information? Yeah. There's no way yeah. for them to prove that they have deleted it, right? Sure. So this is another interesting use case where they could prove that, yeah, mm-hmm. I'll, I'll do a check and make sure that they really have deleted it. We're almost at time, but I just wanted to quickly check back on something that you had mentioned earlier and said you might be able to give a bit of context on later. And I know this is a bit of a switch of topic, but it would be the hybrid cryptography. Sure. What is that actually? So one of the, with post-quantum cryptography, or actually any mix of cryptography, is that sometimes we don't really know how secure it is. Ah. Okay. So imagine that we switch to post-quantum cryptography, and it turns out that it wasn't secure. Maybe even Mm -hmm. classical computers could break it, right? Unlike the hardness assumptions, which are used 
in classical cryptography, which have been tested for decades. Yeah. These ones are kind of new. So simply switching to it might be uh, risky. So how do we deal with that risk? Yeah. So one approach is called hybrid cryptography in which you use both in a way that in order to break it, you need to break both. Right? So think of an encryption scheme. Imagine that you, in order to encrypt a message, now you use two schemes. So think of it like an onion, right? In the first level, you use the pre-quantum scheme. And in the second layer, you use the post-quantum scheme. Mm-hmm. Now, in order to open it up, you need to break both of them. And this is nice because that allows you to kind of enjoy the benefits of both worlds. On the other thing, what you lose, for example, the length, right? Each one doubles the length, and now you you pay the factor of four instead of just two. But for some cases, this is really important, definitely in the early stages where we won't really know for sure how secure things are. You sort of mentioned, though, the security challenge. Like, if you combine these cryptographies, could you ever create a new security vulnerability somehow? Or do you feel like it's always additive, like security plus security? Uh, Yeah, yeah. you definitely need to be uh, careful about these things. This is a great point. Uh, (laughs) There are generic ways to do these things, but you know, you need to be careful and prove that things Mm -hmm. are secure, etc. There are ways that are known to do that in a secure way. But yeah, as usual, don't, uh, how's it called this? uh, Roll your don't own crypto? Di- <laughs> Sorry, don't di- uh, run your own cryptography. Yeah. Don't, uh, roll don't your own roll crypto. your own crypto. Yeah. Don't ro- roll your own crypto. Exactly. <laughs> nice. This reminds me a little bit of an earlier conversation where it was about like Fry's security, Fiat Tremere mm. security. But when you combine the two, you can sometimes actually interrupt. Like you sure. can create problems in that combination. This idea just sort of popped into my head. Or I want to say thank you so much for coming back on the show. And covering with us all of this great additional info, I feel like, I mean, I'm really glad we did a second one. This was an episode in its own right. We talked about like completely different things. So yeah, thanks so much for sharing all this with us. It was wonderful. Thank you so much. Thanks so much. Thanks, Nico, too. Pleasure. This was fascinating from the beginning to the end. Cool. All right. I want to say thank you to the podcast team, Henrik, Rachel, and Tanya, and to our listeners. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.